There's a time and a place for black and white, like when you're learning to play piano, or when you want a big two-toned cookie, or when shopping for a pet zebra. But if you want to attract customers, there's no room for black and white, so go to Staples. Staples specializes in bold, hard-to-miss color printing. And now at Staples, get 20% back in rewards on color printing, from banners to brochures and copies to presentations. Print more color, save more money at Staples. In-store only. Ends 11 10, 18. Restrictions apply. See store associate or staples.com slash 20 back for details. You're listening to Turf Show Radio. With the first pick in the 2016 NFL Draft, the Los Angeles Rams select Jared Goff, quarterback, California. Give it to Gurley. Gurley extending to the goal line. Touchdown. Todd Gurley. That puts him at 1,000 yards on the button in his rookie season. And now. Here's your host. Hello, everybody, and welcome to an all-new episode of Turf Show Times Radio. This is your boy, Josh Webb, a.k.a. Fight on Twist, coming to you live with my off-season partner in crime, Mr. Mycin Adiasor. Mycin, how you doing today? Man, I am chilling, loving this cool Missouri weather. <laughs> it's it's good day today, man. It's, it's nice weather here. Derek, how's it down in uh, sunny Southern California? Oh man, it was perfect today. Like windows down type of day. It was, it was really, really nice. So can't same, complain. Same thing this way, man. And in case you haven't noticed, those were the dulcet tones of Mr. QB Class himself, Derek Classen. Man, it's a pleasure to have you on this podcast as we uh, start to look ahead to the NFL draft and potential fits for the Rams. But before we begin and get to our guest today, who's a good um, I'd like to get your thoughts on the news that Ryan Clady has hit the open market. Myson, uh, let's start with you, and then Derek, or if Derek, you had an opinion first, if that was you, go ahead, and then Myson can go. Whoever just went first, go first. I mean, go all I was it. really was going to say was that, like, Clady hasn't been the same since he was in Denver. And, like, even at the end of his Denver career, he's battled with a lot of injuries, and he wasn't the Pro Bowl caliber player that he was. So, I mean, I don't think Clady hitting the open market is, is too big of a deal. I mean, somebody's obviously going to give him a contract, but I don't think he's the kind of guy that's going to step in and make a major difference for whoever signs him. You don't I think, would agree. Bison, you agree? No, I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... The truth of the matter is, he really hasn't been much of a factor. Left tackles are, um, they're not the easiest guys, like quality left tackles. You know, you don't find them every day. Um, just look at Greg Robinson, for example. You know, there's a guy that's... I have been looking at Greg physical, Robinson, that's the problem. <laughs> oh, there's a guy with all the physical ability in the world and high draft pick and all this stuff, but he just hasn't panned out so far. And every day you find teams that are looking for those left tackles. And, 
if when you find one, you don't really let them go that easily. Um, when Ryan Clady was playing well, there was no chance the Broncos were going to be willing to let him go. But when the play changed and dipped after getting hurt in 2013, um, you could really see that they, they saw the writing on the wall, see that he wasn't the same mm-hmm. player. Um, and that's why they were kind of willing to move on. And now on the wrong side of 30, you know, that's when it gets even harder to start to get that. When you lose it, it's very hard to regain it. And when you get older, yeah. it's even harder. And, it's, like, um, it's like a fighter. Once they, once they develop a chin that's prone to being exactly, knocked out. Exactly. And for the Jets to let him go, and the Jets' offensive line was terrible this past season. You know, when you have a team that's struggling in the area and they're, not, they're letting guys go, that means that you're the – you're one of the worst of the worst, <laughs> you know. So it, that, that's kind. Of, that's kind of that kind of puts the puts the. Puts I, the I, I think I saw something like he was due ten point one million this year. So it's not necessarily that he's the worst of the worst. So yep. much as he's going to cost you a lot more than maybe you feel he's worth. Exactly, and that's the point. True left tackles are going. They're going to get that ten million. If you're a good left tackle, you're going to get that money. I, you don't think he could be a mentor in any capacity? I mean, no. <laughs> just just a fat no. No. All right. I mean, fair enough. My thing with the whole mentor thing, and and my experience with this is mostly looking at quarterbacks, is that I think in most cases when guys were as good as Clady was. Um, I mean, and even some guys that aren't, it's just like they just don't care about mentoring young guys, yeah. and that's not an indictment on them. It's just like. They're trying to get their money too, so and they don't have any obligation to any. Not everybody players, so. has is of the mindset to be a teacher, and not everybody should really expect it to be a teacher. I mean, it's it's yeah. like they say all the time: this is a business. Yep, a value-driven business, and that's why you can't pay him ten million dollars. Exactly. Well, before we begin with our guest, who I'm telling you, it's a good one. Uh, I want to ask you guys. How do you think, Derek, this is more directed at you than at, uh, oh boy, Myson over there, because he's already answered this question probably 25, 30 times, but uh, <laughs> what do you think the, the Rams should spend their first draft pick on? Um, I mean, a lot of people will say BPA, like best player available, and as much as they need to get an offensive uh, a skill position player, like, you know, a wide receiver, or even if they grabbed a tight end, like, even though they just took one, I don't think I would be too upset about it. Um, or, and like, a lot of people are saying, oh, don't take defense, but I mean, they have a lot more holes on defense than I think is being let on. So I'm kind of of the opinion, just take the best player available. If that ends up being, um, I just wrote about Pat Elflane, who's a mm-hmm. guard center for Ohio State. I think he's really, really good. Um, he would step in and immediately be the best offensive lineman on the team. So I know that's not a sexy pick, considering that the Rams might only have one uh, pick on the first two days. But I mean, he's a good player that's going to improve the team. So I think that's hard to that's hard to argue, and that's what you're getting out of a player. Um, I would like to see them go wide receiver, especially since I think like people are talking up. You know, you've got Mike Williams and then Corey Davis, and it seems like those two are starting to be locks for like the top 20 but then after that you kind of have a crapshoot of guys like 
Juju Smith, uh, John Ross, and a couple of other guys. And I think that one of them is bound to fall to where the Rams are. So I think that could make some sense. And then I think cornerback would make a lot of sense because this is a so pretty. So Juju Smith or John Ross, class. who would you take? Gun to your head. Um, if the Rams are going to stick with Jared Goff, like if that's their plan, I think Juju Smith make more sense because he's a guy that's going to be better at going and getting the ball and is going to be better in the short game. Whereas like John Ross, you're kind of getting like a, uh, I know um, it might've been Emory Hunt that had this comparison, but he compared John Ross to, or somebody compared John Ross to Santana Moss, who was a pretty good deep threat for a large part of his career until he got old and just lost his speed. So, I mean, I think if you can get Santana Moss, that's pretty good. I just think with Jared Goff's skill set, that's so, not. I, I know that I should be on here advocating Juju Smith-Schuster, but the truth of the matter is, is that he's got a lot of mileage on him. A lot of mileage coming out of high school or co- coming out of college. Um probably more than you'd like a wide receiver to have. Now, the good news is is that you basically get tape of every damn route and route combination known to man. Uh, The bad news is is that 46% of USC's offense went through Juju Smith-Schuster in the same (laughs) year, and that's not good news. That's not stuff you want to see if you're an executive taking a chance on a guy with your only second-round pick mind you, that's probably going to yield anything of substance. Not the only second-round pick, but the only one I think that's really going to have... I, I, I know they pick again five picks later, but I just feel like this, this, this pick right here is so critical to what the Rams are going to do, and I feel like if you're going to take a receiver, I think I like John Ross more than Juju Smith-Schuster. I just... Don't trust the injuries with Juju. And and if you have a guy like Jared Goff, who's inevitably going to develop a rapport with whichever receiver gets him off the ground, now that might very well be Juju Smith-Schuster. So now you're going from the most pass-to guy in college to the most pass-to guy in the NFL. I'm just wondering how much of a toll that's going to take on his body and in the end, how much are you really going to get back out of that pick? That's just one man's opinion. What do I know? Uh, but I think it's time for us to get our guest on right now. Who is Mr. Matt Waldman of Rookie Scouting Portfolio? Nobody knows this business like Matt. And I know Derek's been chomping at the bit to, to be on this podcast to talk to him. So, Scott, why don't we go ahead and get uh, Matt on, and uh, let's talk some skill position players. All right, guys. We are very pleased to be joined by Mr. Matt Waldman of Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Matt, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Other than the technological difficulties that cost us mice in, uh, we're doing well. We're doing well. Um <laughs> Uh, ready definitely to talk about something other than technology for sure. Um, so Derek, the way that we usually do it is we usually just snake around questions. Uh, so I will go ahead and let you go first and, uh, you just ask two questions and then I will, uh, I'll come around the back end with another two. Okay. Uh, Matt, I want to pick your brain a little bit about this quarterback class, mainly, uh, 
Mitch Trubisky because currently I have him as the number fourth guy in the class, and I want to know where you have if you have him above any of Mahomes, Kaiser, and Watson, and why that is. That's a good question. Um, you know, Derek, right now. Um, I'm still studying quarterbacks, so in terms of rankings, I don't have anything set in stone just as of yet. But at this point of what I've done, studying a, a fair bit of games of those guys, Trubisky is fourth on my board as well, but he is above Watson. But I don't know if that's because I haven't finished studying Watson yet at this stage. Um, so when I look at Trubisky, it, you know, he's a player that I feel like conceptually he concerns me more than what he offers physically physically i think he's gonna you know people may wonder about his height they may nitpick certain things but i think you know that he has enough when you're looking at what he can offer with his arm what he can offer in terms of going to you know first or second or even third reads or reading the field in terms of reading you know the entire field and making some full field reads within his scheme um you're going to see some nice play off structure at times where he can avoid pressure and make a big play and make a really accurate throw in a way that you can't always make from a system quarterback or a quarterback who is, you know, firmly entrenched in the pocket. So some of those things are going to excite people or going to make them feel like that he has the potential to be a franchise guy. The things that worry me about Trubisky most is that uh, I think more than anything is that I have issues with, how he may ignore certain reads or ignores depths of coverage. And as a result, he'll end up trying to place the ball in the play into areas where he shouldn't. And he should have seen that pre post snap, or he will, I guess the best way to put it is hold on to the ball too long. And he had a clear check down and decides that he wants to try and, you know, buy time a little longer to see if something else comes open. And then he'll in, he'll inevitably come back to that check down. It won't be there. And he winds up getting sacked or he winds up forcing a ball and he winds up making a major mistake for his team. So I've seen plays with him in multiple games where I feel like, yeah, he's come close to being the hero, but if he didn't dig himself a hole for his team in the first place on some of those plays, I'd be a little bit happier. So when I think of him as a leader, as a manager of an offense, which all quarterbacks have to be, um, I don't think he's a very good manager at this stage. Um, I think he's a guy that, you know, people may, it's like the guy in a, at a company who we've all worked for them where they create chaos, um, but they get credit for pulling the, pulling the group out of chaos with some sort of solution. But if they hadn't created the chaos in the first place, then maybe we all wouldn't have been in that spot. Um, and I think that Trubisky, I'm a little worried about him being that kind of player. That makes a lot of sense, and I'm actually going to use my second question to kind of counter up on that. Is like a lot of people said that about Jameis Winston, and I think it was true to some degree. But I think the way that Jameis Winston had managed games prior to having to make, you know, crazy comebacks or crazy throws or, or things of that nature, is that he was actually a pretty good game manager and understood how to make, um, you know, certain reads and make throws that he needed to make and that sort of thing. Um, and I agree with you in that I don't necessarily see that from Trubisky in the same way that we saw from a guy like Winston. But Trubisky still ends up in these situations where he has to uh, dig himself out. So I guess my question would be, how similar do you think your concern there with Trubisky is to the way that Winston was looked at? Yeah, that's a great question, too. And, you know, 
when I think about Winston is I think you brought up the point very well is that Winston was a good game manager in many respects. I think the difference between the two is subtle, but it's that nuance that's important, which is that Winston seemed to see what he was supposed to see a lot of times and tended either to ignore it because he thought he could fit the ball in there. There was some hubris with his play. Whereas I think with Trubisky, I would say that while there is some hubris there, I would say there's a higher dose of ignorance uh, in terms of how he sees or doesn't see what's happening. Um, And I think that that's really the difference there is that I would say that from a conceptual standpoint, Winston was a more advanced quarterback. And I don't think that Trubisky is as as advanced in that um, way. So, you know, for me, it was just a matter of that you had a player who thought he could put the, the, the game into his own hands and maybe try and fire a ball into a tighter window than he should have. And yeah, like every quarterback at this level, they're going to miss some underneath zones that, you know, linebackers dropping into zones or cornerbacks, you know, playing a hybrid kind or a defensive back playing a hybrid kind of coverage that, you know, they may not normally see. And as a result of that, that, you know, they're going to make a throw that looks pretty dumb. Um, but I think that Trubisky had a higher incident of this looks that, you know, being in situations where the, the read looked pretty obvious. He ignored it, didn't gauge the depth, went to his second, you know, his first read didn't come open. His second read he would look at, and he should have seen pre-snap that there was going to be a defender in position where he threw the ball. He threw it kind of blindly into a set in area where he shouldn't have. Whereas with Winston, it was kind of more of trying to force it and, and knowing it was there, but he could find a way to get through it. And for Trubisky, it was more of, I didn't realize I didn't see it, you know. I think that's really kind of more the thing there. So, again, it just comes down to, you know, willful hubris versus maybe ignorance of the situation, whereas like Blake Bortles at times doesn't see the coverage well um, and will make throws that he shouldn't. And I would say it's the same thing. It's like I say he's more like Bortles than he is like um, James Winston. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like the last thing you brought up, and I think what – what I've been trying to, you know, collect my thoughts on the past few days is that, you know, when a quarterback is doing the thing that, you know, Winston does where he gets a little hubris, and I think Watson is like this in a lot of ways, is that I think there's a better chance of there being a positive play at the end of that decision, whereas if you have, you know, like the ignorance of, you know, they just weren't seeing a read or something, I think there's a, a lot smaller chance that that play is going to somehow end up good. So, when you see sometimes maybe the same end results from what, you know, Winston versus Trubisky is doing, I think more often than not, you're going to see good results out of the processes that Winston and guys like Watson are going through as opposed to Trubisky. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. And when you look at, you know, the thing with Trubisky is that all players do this. I mean, if we look at young players who can move around a pocket and can buy time, it's easy for a younger player that after they've avoided two or three players and they're, They've run through around half the field behind the line of scrimmage and they're in the red area. The last thing they want to do is throw the ball away. It's the first thing they should do, but it's the last thing they want to do because they're kind of like, and it's understandable. You know, if you've ever been in an athletic endeavor like that and you're like, look, I've come this far. (laughs) I've been able to avoid as many people. Let's finish this play. I know there's an opening here. I want to finish it. It's part of being competitive, but there's a, 
there's a level of maturity that arrives with these players at some point where they realize that the winning hand sometimes is not to go for it, but to lay it up and just wait for the next play and be smart and be more, again, let the field general take over rather than being the playmaker. And sometimes the field general has to pull rank on the playmaker and say, we're going to save that element of my game um, for the right moment. And this wasn't the right moment. And I think that, you know, Trubisky and, um, you know, Watson and Jameis are all guilty of that. But I think that Jameis is probably going to be, I I would expect Jameis Winston to probably um, mature from that over time um, and a little bit faster. And also it's not, his isn't as root as as is an ignorance as we've said before. Yeah, I agree with everything. Um, thanks for answering those questions, Matt. I, I've been meaning to try to pick your brain on Trubisky for a while there. Yeah, no, he uh, he seems to be a hot button issue for a lot of people, and I know that uh, you you've kind of been enamored with him in 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 a uh, frustrated sort of way, Derek. <laughs> Trying, yeah. <laughs> trying, trying to figure out the hype behind him. I understand that that, that thirst for knowledge. I kind of want to stay in that wheelhouse, and, and I want to talk about quarterbacks, but I want to talk about what you saw out of Jared Goff this season. Um, obviously, it was not a season that Goff is going to want to remember. Uh, it's one of those burn the entire set of films, if you can. Uh, posted worse numbers than Cody Kessler, as I like to bring up, who was concussed out of the season. Um, and on a franchise that won a single game, which I'm not sure the Rams actually deserve to win four games. So, uh, but the question I want to ask is, when you look at Goff, are you more certain now? Because I remember I talked to you about this on my old podcast, Flipping Tables, with, with Cam Morell. I know Cam and I talked to you about the Wentz and Goff discussion. And, and you had some opinions then. Do you feel more entrenched in those opinions now after having seen him for a season? Or has he opened your eyes to maybe some things that you think he can do to be successful in the NFL? Um, well, I mean, I like golf. He was my top quarterback at, out of this class. So, um, you know, I, so the way I look at it is I'm just waiting for an opportunity to see him for a full season. Um, and the, the, the biggest thing that I think that is worth learning about and that I find fascinating, I know that I've had discussions with some Ram fans who listen to this show is, and I've written about this is, the first place we have to begin is we have to understand that when you play in a air raid system and there, and the, the fundamental elements are different enough, that's like learning a new language to go to more of a West coast oriented system that the Rams were running. Um, you know, talking to a quarterback coach that I worked with a good bit in my film room series, his name is Will Hewitt, um, who works with a number of, you know, college, high school and some pro guys. Um, you know, Will, I asked Will about it, and he had mentioned to me, he said, you know, it's like learning Chinese. It's like, you know, if you're going to go to West Coast and learn that. And so I thought about that analogy, and I'd written about this with Goff and with Prescott some, um, and talking about the two, because, you know, I think what Ram fans need to understand is, is I know that we had folks like Bucky Brooks, who was a fine analyst at NFL.com and NFL Network, 
But I, I found it a little bit disingenuous to, to seem surprised that, you know, if he, as an NFL player, that you'd be surprised that golf wasn't nearly ready to start the season, um, especially given that transition. Because, I mean, I think all of us can agree that if you have a, a you know, let's just take a, an average person who, you know, maybe is learning that, that new language. We'll use that analogy of learning Chinese. You know, you could be an intelligent, insightful, perceptive, funny, you know, witty human being with compassion and the way that you express yourself and express those things in words is, you know, one of your strengths as a person. Now you're going to learn Chinese and you're getting dropped into a marketplace in Hong Kong and you have to go to the bathroom and it's a pretty urgent situation for you. And you're in a busy marketplace and you ask somebody who doesn't speak English, you ask them in your best, you know, phrasing of Chinese, where's the nearest bathroom? And he proceeds to talk to you about as fast as I'm talking to you about this pace right now and explains to you that it's, you know, three blocks down into the green door, go up three flights of stairs, ignore the door that says, you know, men's room um, that's going to have a wheelchair on it. Um, you want to go three uh, more doors down and make sure that you knock twice before you open it. Now, first of all, if you're just learning the language, you probably didn't catch most of that. Second of all, the urgency that's waiting you biologically is probably pretty tough. And I don't think any of the things that even when you're trying to have a normal conversation besides something like that, that you're going to be able to show any of those qualities of your personality that you've developed over 20-something years, um, you know, in terms of learning your, the English language. Those things are going to be sublimated for a while. So for folks to say, I can't believe Jared Goff wasn't ready, he's a bust, he's not really that good after all, his skills weren't that good, is really ignoring the fact that he played in an offense where he had to learn a different language in a short period of time and a very, and a very different one. And it was going to sublimate a lot of what he did when he did get on the field. I actually thought, especially against the dolphins, I saw the first game against the dolphins or I don't know if it was the first game it was the second game, but watching that game, you know, I felt like he was able to read some double a gap pressure that was disguised well and know where to throw the ball. I felt like that he made good decisions under pressure. Um, he had a number of drops, high receivers in that game. Um, yeah. I thought he played tough, you know, and watching against Seattle. I mean, when you, when, you know, I thought all the things that were there, you could see evidence of many of the things there that I liked about his game. But, you know, it, you have a team that's in disarray. Um, you have an offensive line that's not doing the job that it needs to do. The running game's not working. The onus is being put on a young passer. And you have receivers who, you know, frankly, you don't have a receiver in the bunch. And, and anyone who's a, uh, a prospect of doing so was a rookie who drops too many balls and may have been, you know, may have gotten to see one game of action at this stage. Um, so it's, to me, it was a big incomplete. But I like the fact that Sean McVay is going to be the coach. They're going to bring a lot of the Kyle Shanahan principles into the, into the mix. And I think that, you know, someone who watches Atlanta Falcons a lot um, for footballguys.com over the past 10 years and being from Atlanta myself, um, it, you know, I think that the, those are things that I think golf can eventually learn to do. The issue is, is 
the team going to be patient? Is there going to be enough of support system around them? Because the talent's still there. I'm still firmly entrenched that he is a very talented quarterback. But the bigger issue isn't his talent. It's the talent of the developers and the talent of the surrounding staff with him. And that's the biggest reason for pass or fail for pretty much, you know, any top quarterback prospect um, that gets drafted. Now, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up McVay and the, the Kyle Shanahan principles, because one of the things I want to ask you is how you think the McVay-McFleur uh, dynamic will play out and to what benefit will will what what benefits will there be for golf yeah i mean i think for i think the main thing is when you look at what they at least i can tell you from what shanahan likes to do we you know obviously we're going to see this year what mcveigh and florida are going to want to do together and how that's going to be different than what um, shanahan does but you'll see you know you probably see you know zone running principles um You'll see some play action that works off of that and some rollouts to look at one side of the field and throw on the move. Um, you're going to see some throwback situations where they, you know, you, you have some misdirection and then you throw it back across the field. And those are what they're trying to create. There are kind of easy opportunities for players to get wide open and slip behind the defense. Um, and that benefits players like, uh, you know, a guy like, Austin, who I don't think is a particularly strong vertical route runner, um, but may be able to get open on things like that. Or a, a Cooper, who, again, I think is a good up-for-grabs kind of 50-50 ball receiver and a, and a slot guy who's probably good on, again, he's, to me, he's another version of Austin who's, who's just a little bit more physical. Um, but it may also give more opportunities to guys who can win vertically, like maybe even their, you know, their young tight end if he can, uh, you know, get onto the field. I think that they can use two tight end sets a little bit more often, um, which allows them, again, to have a stronger component in the running game um, where, you know, they can use that run effectively but also get deep plays off of it. But at the same time, you notice that the receivers that they have, I mean, in, in Kyle Shanahan's system in Atlanta last, not this past year, but the year before, you know, the old system with Mike Smith's regime, you had a, a timing-oriented receiver in Roddy White. And in his heyday, he was one of the best route runners in the league. And he and Matt Ryan were automatic on timing routes that could move the chains in tight coverage, even against top cornerbacks. They couldn't stop some of the timing routes that they threw, like comebacks and deep outs and curls and anything at the sideline like that. But once White got hurt, they really didn't have an element like that. I mean, Julio Jones has gotten a lot better as a route runner, and he certainly can make many of those um, plays, but he's more of a 50-50 ball receiver, and he's also such a big, deep element as a field stretcher up the sideline that they want to use him in that way or use him after the catch where he can be facing downfield and not facing back to the quarterback. And, and, and also they want to have a receiver that, that can work that White element and White benefited from Julio Jones stretching the field in that respect in the past. So in the first year that they had Shanahan, they had White. He was they were still trying to. White wasn't a crossing route guy anymore. He was you know he was slowed by that ankle injury. So he's not a guy that was going to get you a lot after the catch 
Um, so they, getting Mohamed Sanu was a good example of someone that fit very well, who can run the crossers, who can run the quick three-step, five-step slants, um, and be able to make those types of plays underneath um, in addition to what Jones offers, and, and he would get those free opportunities underneath. And then the same thing with getting Gabriel. Gabriel can do that, but he also has that timing route element um, so that they could supplement that a little bit too. And he really helped that team out when Julio Jones um, was out for a few games last year because of the fact that he could he could do work deep, but he also could provide a, a versatile element for them. So I think for the Rams, what they're going to be looking for here is this system may be a decent match for some of its players right now, whether it's Cooper or Austin, because they can get them in the open space, running you know simpler routes in the route tree, um, where they can take advantage of their skill after the catch a little bit more. And rather than just making catches at the line of scrimmage and getting dumped on um, because everyone knows it's coming, you're going to have a little more misdirection. You're going to have a little bit more strength in the run game. And hopefully some of these plays will be, you know, timing backside throws that, you know, with misdirection so that these guys are heading downfield when they're catching the ball, as opposed to have to generate their own momentum behind the line of scrimmage. And I think that that, that will be what they're trying to do. The bigger element at play will be who's the deep receiver in that, in that mix. Or is it going to be a free agent? Will it be a rookie? Will it be one of the, the younger guys who gets the game together, a guy like Mike Thomas or Nelson Spruce or whomever that you're looking at that was from that class before who, you know, might be able to get downfield with some of this type of element and at least keep the defense off um, honest in that respect. Church is in session tonight with Mr. Matt Waldman of Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Uh, and I feel like he set you up there, uh, Derek, for a couple questions about that receiving core. So if you want to take him and run with it, have at it, my brother. All right, Matt. So I, I'm not quite sure how many of the receivers you've seen to this point. Um, but, I mean, we all know that the Rams need a receiver of, I mean, any variety, to be honest. Who or what type of receiver, I would say, and then what type or what player in that receiver type do you think would be the best for the Rams? Um, I mean, keeping in mind that they only have their second round pick or their second round pick is their first pick. Yeah, and I think that that's a, you know, it is a great question because, I mean, I was a big Mike Thomas fan as a late round type of guy. And, it, you know, but catching the, being able to catch the ball consistently, consistently was an issue. Um, it, and it did pop up, and it's something that will hopefully maybe he can build on this season and, and really surprise. But guys in the set that might be in the available in the second round, you know, heading up that list, depending on how the draft falls, maybe they can get a guy like Josh Reynolds at Texas A&M, who is kind of a tall, rangy athlete who can adjust to the football, but he also does a very good job of coming back to the, to the quarterback on routes. Um, he's one of those guys that wins the ball in the air, but he also can separate well. Um, so what you're looking at is a guy who's in that kind of AJ green, um, real estate. He's not, and when I say real estate, let's say, you know, city regional real estate, not necessarily neighborhood real estate. Um, he's, you know, somewhere I would say, you know, if you remember Chris Henry from the, from the Bengals back in the day, he, to me, he's a better version of Chris Henry but not quite A.J. Green in that respect. Catching the ball, sometimes he has 
he'll he'll drop some passes, but then he'll make incredible plays. So it sounds a lot like Mike Thomas in that respect, but I think that he's a little bit more consistent there. Um, you know, if you're looking for someone who can do work both as a a physical presence and you know, but at the same time run decent routes, but doesn't have the the same type of speed. Corey Davis is certainly in that conversation if he doesn't get drafted in the first round. After that, you know, to me, you're, you're going to get some interesting varieties because I, I would not want to see them go back and get another guy out of the Tavon Austin mold, another guy out of the Cooper role. Um, I feel like they already have those types of players. So guys like, you know, John Ross, there are a lot of people who are comparing him to uh, Odell Green Beckham. Or, I'm not scared about Green Beckham. Um, Odell Beckham. Um, but, uh, Odell Beckham, and I think that thing with Ross is that I don't think he's I think he's more of a Brandon Cooks guy than he is an Odell Beckham guy, which to me is very fast, very fluid. Um, but when you get when he gets pushed off his game and he gets jostled around, contact disrupts this guy. Odell Beckham never had that issue. You could be as physical as you wanted to be with him, and he just keep coming at you, Ross. I, I, I have concerns about him being able to handle physical play as consistently. So then you're looking at guys who are lesser, maybe lesser known, but are interesting. You know, having a big receiver would be helpful. Juju Smith-Schuster certainly is, can, could be that type of guy. And in an offense where you run the ball more and do more play action, he can get deep in that respect. He's a physical player. He makes good plays downfield on the intermediate to deep range. He's just not going to blow the top off of um, coverage on his own, um, you know, just straight up against a, a top guy. Um, but he's a guy that people are going to be interested in or going to be interested in looking at because he's a reasonably polished receiver, kind of in the mode of, you know, some people compare him to Des Bryant in terms of style. He's not, he's not Des Bryant, but I certainly think that, you know, you can look at him and say he's, you know, he's a good enough possession plus receiver who can make some big plays that that will be worth looking at. Chad Hampton, you know, a golf's old teammate from Cal, um, had quite a season. Reminds me kind of, a, I don't know if Marvin Jones is a good, um, a good comparison, but his ability to win the ball in the air, his speed's pretty darn good. Um, and I think that, you know, the development as a route runner needs to be better, but I think that with the route that they want to run, they're not going to ask him to do a lot of routes breaking back to the quarterback as much as they're going to be doing, I would think, slants and posts and seam routes and, you know, deep comebacks where I think he can be reasonably good in that respect. So, I mean, some of those guys, to, to me, I think are interesting. And, of course, Mike Williams out of, you know, Clemson, he's going to be a higher-end draft pick in terms of his stock value. I may not be as high on him as some people are, um, but he will get in the conversation. And I think what they need is a more than anything is a sure-handed guy who can win the ball in the air and take contact um, and, and have potential to run timing routes. So I think a bigger guy, um, bigger, taller guy, who has, is heading in the right direction in terms of polish, who can give you some of that aerial acrobatics. One of our uh, 
One of our guys who writes for the website actually had a question about those mid-round receiver options, and he wanted to know your opinions about Chad Hansen and a guy like Jalen Robinette. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd rather have Hansen. Robinette to me is Robinette to me is more impressive with the ball in the air in terms of if you want him specifically in the red zone. But every time I watch him, I don't feel comfortable with his ability to get separation. With Hanson, I, I feel like he can get that separation. And Hanson's one of those guys that, with the NFL, the, the thing is is that the draft is a different animal than scouting. Um, the, draft is, the draft is about hiring and recruiting more than it is about um, the scouting is part of it, and it's a very important part of it. But we have to understand that when it comes to the GM and the coach making decisions, what they're looking at in addition to – does he have the baseline talent that we like this guy? They're, they're looking at the higher the round we're going to look at this guy, the more we want to know about how we feel about his character, what do we know about his production, what school he played at, how many years of production he had, you know, what kind of awards he had, things that you may think seem stupid, but they're bullet point things that cover their assets when fans and talk radio and media all basically, you know, climb aboard to bash somebody. They want to be able to say, well, look, you know, we did our due diligence with this guy. We didn't just make some reckless decision. They're investing money into risk management type of thing. Chad Hansen being a, you know, one-year guy at Cal, basically, as a starter, you know, is going to be more of a mid-round guy, even if he has talent that might put him a little bit earlier on my board if you were just ranking him based on what he did on the field and not you know, how he fills into those template resume points. So I, I like Hanson more. I, Hanson's going to probably end up being a top 10 player on my wide receiver board. And I didn't mean to uh, scoach question there from you, Derek. It just seemed like a, a perfect place to drop in Tevin's question since he was already talking about him. So back to you, big guy. Hey, no worries. No, that was a perfect question. Um, I mean, it kind of, it kind of had a little bit to do with my next question was like, I was actually going to, I was going to ask about Chad Hansen, um, but we can move on from that one. My, I want to talk a little bit more about John Ross, because I think John Ross is going to end up being, I mean, I, I haven't paid too much attention to where draft coaches at on receivers and maybe this is already the case, but John Ross seems to be one of the most divisive uh, wide receiver prospects in this class. Like even people that like, uh, even people that don't, quote unquote, like Mike Williams, still have him as, you know, wide receiver two or something like that. Um, but with John Ross, I've seen him fall a little bit down the list just because, you know, like you were saying, Matt, people are worried about how he handles physicality. Um, but I'm with you in that he is still like Brandon Cooks in, in the fact that he may battle with some of that physicality a little bit. Uh, but I think he still can find ways to win at times. And then I think if you mask him and just put him off of the line a little bit, um, and kind of scheme him that way. You don't necessarily have to scheme him open, just give him a little bit of room at the line. And that's what New Orleans does with Brandon Cooks. Um, I was wondering, you know, how good do you think that uh, Ross is going to be in a situation like the Rams where, you know, you have a guy like McVeigh who's shown he can do a very good job at getting guys open. I mean, you look at what McVeigh was doing with like those three receiver sets, and he did a very good job of keeping receivers clean with all of these confusing vertical stems. Uh, what do you think like a guy like Ross's ceiling is in Los Angeles? That's a great question. And it's funny because the guy that I didn't mention who's on the upper end of that comparison 
though I've heard people say that they think Ross is a better version of it, or I've seen that on Twitter occasionally, is Deshaun Jackson. I think Deshaun Jackson um, is a terrific receiver. And if Ross has anywhere near the career Jackson had in at his best, um, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be very happy with him. And I think that the, I think that Ross would be a good fit in that regard. It's, you know, to me, it's, uh, again, the thing with Ross is that you may say, oh yeah, if you get physical with him, then, it, you know, he's not as good. Well, good luck getting physical with him. Good luck getting your hands on him. Good luck being able to disrupt him without committing pass interference. Um, because, most likely that your two chances of disrupting him are either going to come at the line of scrimmage. And if you miss, he's gone. Um, or at his break point, um, where he's basically running by you. Um, and either one is, is fraught with risk. So I think he will, he would be a good fit. Um, I do think that he's physical enough when you watch him as a blocker, you know, you'll see instances of him using his hands and being physical at times. And I think that it's not something, it's something that he can learn. And again, he's not 178 or, you know, in his low 170s. He's probably, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's more closer to the one, 190 range. And if he is, then, you know, and that turns out to be the case, then I don't think we're going to be that worried about it in that respect. I think, again, part of it, too, is you have to remember that as a college player, if you're always just scaring defenses to the point that they're playing off you all the time, that when you get the rare opponent who's not afraid and makes you earn their respect with physical contact, you're actually surprised by it at first. You know, it may just be unfamiliarity with anyone playing him that way. It might not be because he stinks at it. It just might be he's unfamiliar with it and, and that he'll get better at it. And I think that, so for me, yeah, it's a good fit um, in what they want to try and do, and he could be a good replacement. He's, he's flexible enough that if Tavon Austin doesn't work out, um, Cooper doesn't work out, and they need to add another receiver after Ross, Ross should still be good enough that they can use him in, the, in a few ways in that offense, and it could work out because he could play that Taylor Gabriel role at, at, at an even higher end. He can give you – some of that higher end, you know, Deshaun Jackson type of thing, stretching the field, and and that works well. And you can pair him up with a, a bigger guy like tight end Higby if Higby comes to fruition and plays like, you know, shows even more promise this year. You can Put pair a pin him up in on this one because we're coming back to him. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, when you look at McVay's offense, you look at, look at what Deshaun Jackson and – um, Vernon Davis often did as a pairing, or Deshaun Jackson and you know I want to I can't believe I'm Jordan um, can't remember his last name, but you, you know who I'm talking about. We all know who, who their top tight end is. Um, the kid out of Florida, they would pair those two guys together on twin sides of the field and run rub routes or run different types of plays where they could give Jackson a free release, or Jackson would run off the coverage. And you'd have the tight end underneath being able to make some, um, get some yardage off of that. And I think Ross paired with a tight end on that side would fit what Washington did and what McVay would do, could probably do again here with the Rams. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And my only worry a little bit with Ross in L.A. was that I don't think Goff is a tremendous deep passer. Um, but like you were saying, with the way that a guy like Ross forces teams to play off, and you saw this with Jackson in McVay's offense, is that it allows for so many things underneath. And, you know, like you said, I think, you know, if you could get Higby, who's a pretty athletic guy for his size at tight end, if you could get him running some shorter underneath routes that could generate some yards after catch with Ross clearing over the top, I mean, I think that's a, a very stable way for the, the Rams to create offense if that's the way that they, um, you know, if that's the way that they end up going. Yeah. Uh, you know, I uh, before we come back to Tyler Higby, I wanted to get your thoughts real briefly because we were actually having a, a conversation about Juju Smith-Schuster versus John Ross for this offense. And, and my main problem with Juju Smith-Schuster is that you're getting a guy who's played a lot of college ball. Um, not, well, that's typically the case with a guy who's, you know, a, a junior or whatever. I mean, we're talking about a guy who had 46% of the offense funneled through him in one year of college football. That is a lot of wear and tear on a receiver. Um, just due to Cody Kessler's over-reliance on him. And Juju Smith-Schuster was oft injured in, in big games, uh, wasn't able to give it his best for USC in some of those big games because of it. Um, I just think that while... And plus I look at... And I hate saying this, too, because I don't really think one has anything to do with the other. But the trend of USC receivers that are built up and then basically be, have become moderate in the NFL uh, compared to what they were, you know, it, and, and we've talked about this before, is it the fact that you're surrounded by five-star guys that makes you a five-star or is it your ability that makes you a five-star and in and, and these sorts of things? I'm curious where you come down on Juju Smith-Schuster, even if it's not necessarily in the context of John Ross. I like I I've come around on Juju Smith-Schuster in the past. Okay. Um, I win me over. I, okay, easily. He's a when you watch guys when you watch guys that you really like, like really good football players. And I, I love Juju. Say, I love watching okay. him. him and Dory. I I've, I oh. have. Thoroughly enjoyed them since his freshman year. I thought that kid could become something special when he was making those diving one-handed grabs. I mean, that's that's NFL-type stuff, and he's shown that throughout his career at USC. Okay, so let's let's go back to, you know, would you agree that Adrian Peterson is a, a great football player? Uh, absolutely. Right. Okay, would you agree Marshawn Lynch? And Des Bryant are excellent football players. Yes, without a doubt. What what they all have in common is they play with a very hyperkinetic style. If you watch them move, they almost look frenetic in the way that their body moves. Um, there's a sense of urgency and high pace that kind of radiates with how they move. Um, now, that doesn't mean that all great players have that uh, have that or that all players who have that are, are really good players. Um, but it is always, I find it fascinating because when I watched Juju Smith-Schuster, the first time, few viewings I had of him, I had questions again about what everyone else did. Can he win downfield? 
Is he really an explosive player? Is he someone that can be the primary receiver in an offense? And and does that mean that if he can't, is he not? You know, do we suddenly dismiss him as not really worth being taking? You know, among the top handful of receivers in this class. You know, when I say handful, maybe two handfuls. Let's put it that way. Um, I think Juju Smith-Schuster, like Des Bryant, has that ability to play with a high level of energy and intensity. And the thing that makes pro players good to me necessarily isn't the diving athletic stuff because really the top athletes in college football do all that right now. But if you're going to be a top player on Sunday – you've got to go beyond that because Tavon Austin can dive and make pretty plays, but can he run the route he's supposed to run? Is he taking the time to learn the techniques he needs to learn to get open? Does he come back to the football and run this? Does he run the routes with the right depth so that he's not screwing up his quarterback's timing? Is he reading the defense and understanding where the safeties and linebackers located so that he knows that, what type of adjustment he should make. And is he on the same page with his quarterback? And right now we could say it's fair that the Rams have had so many different quarterbacks and so many different receivers playing with them that there really has been no continuity in that regard. But, you know, those are things that still, that's those small details, those things that we go, oh, they're going to learn routes. People are going to coach them up. They're going to learn all this stuff. No, that's the difference between a great athlete who plays on Saturday and a good starter who plays on Sunday is the one who works maniacally at these details of the things that you see on high school videos, the things that you see on how to play football videos that are, you know, that could be with a coach who's more overweight than I am coaching up some little eight year old and telling them how to run a route, you know, and showing them the little details. It's the, it's the player with the high-end athletic ability who works at those things and refines them to a level of precision that they're always doing it the right way. And they know how to adjust to it in difficult situations. And I think Juju Smith-Schuster has shown more of that potential than a lot of the receivers in this class. And so to me, when you look at some of these other players, you know, that, that, we've seen at USC or at other programs where there's a run of players at a program. Oftentimes it's because, you know, we're looking at athletic clones of a player or they, they, they were able to get easy plays off of, uh, you know, easy plays for big production. And so then they're getting those comparisons. I think Schuster, oftentimes a lot of the plays that he's done, I wouldn't say he's done them. The, he's done them the hard way, but you can see that, the plays that he makes are projectable to what you would see on Sunday. And for me, when it comes to running routes, making plays in tight coverage, um, winning, you know, winning against press, winning, you know, finding the open area and coming back to the quarterback and making an easy target for him. Those things are there. Do I think he's going to be a a great receiver? Do I think he's going to be the top primary guy on a team? I don't think so. But I think that, he can be that number two who can give you production that's better than a number one if it's a dynamic offense, um, you know. And so he could be that that second guy in a two-man receiving core that people go, wow, you know, 
he could he could be the primary guy on another team, and we we would have to look closer and probably bust that myth, but it would seem that way on the surface. That's fair. See, the reason that I've been a little bit lower on Juju Smith isn't necessarily because I dislike him, because all the things you said about him were true, and the work ethic that that kid's put in, you can see his body and the way he's worked on it since he stepped foot on campus and decided he was going to dedicate his career because there was some hubbub when he first came to USC about what direction he was going to play. Was he going to play, play safety? Was he going to play both ways? And he was one of those two-way guys that, uh, even though it was told they could play two ways, ended up saying, "Hey, I'm." I'm he went, I think he actually played safety for one play, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I, I, the guy that I like on USC just a little bit more than him is Darius Rogers, and I think D. Raj is the type of guy who does all of those things that you said, but he's got. I, I just find his route running, and I know if Meissen were on here, he would say the same thing. I think he's a little bit more polished than Juju Smith-Schuster, but I'm willing to let you humiliate me on air and tell me why I'm miserably wrong about that because I, I freely admit that I do not come close to watching the amount of film that you and Derek watch. So what I see is stuff that I, I, I see visually and then commit to memory, which is pretty good, but it's it's not a... It's not an exact science for scouting, I'll tell you that much. So, uh, you know, scouting, scouting isn't a science. You know, it's a craft, and certainly I haven't, I haven't watched the player you mentioned because he's not coming out for the draft, as far as I know. So I haven't really focused on him at this stage. So I couldn't do a comparison for you. All I can tell you is that um, I think Juju Smith-Schuster has the things that that we just that I just discussed, and that makes him a decent player and. You know, it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for, if your criteria for receivers is he's good because he's good only if he's a, you know, a top 12 receiver potential in the NFL, then, you know, then your criteria is too high. If you're, if you're, um, you know, and to me, it's Juju Smith-Schuster is a guy that, you know, he's in a class of players that a lot of them may end up being complementary receivers, um, good complementary receivers, um, but not necessarily the go. Darius Rogers is is coming out, by the way. He he actually has declared he was a senior last year, so he. I, well, I'll have to give him a look. Yeah. Um, I, he's one of USC's eight guys that have been invited to the combine. Justin Davis, Dory Jackson, Banner, Mama, Darius Rogers, Smith Schuster, Stevie T, and uh, Chad Wheeler. Um, it's a couple of those guys are offensive linemen. But 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 fair enough. I mean, the question was asked and, and, and answered. You know, coming back to Higby, one of uh, one of the questions that we got uh, from one of our listeners was, if I can find it here, was uh, what do you actually feel uh, Higby is capable of uh, accomplishing, he and Cooper? Because you mentioned Cooper a bit earlier. Obviously, Higby didn't quite have the breakout 
uh, a freshman campaign in the NFL that some were thinking he was going to have. I know there was a lot of talk about him coming out of Rams training camp, like he could have a breakthrough season, but he he went through the motions, and and I th- I don't really think Jeff Fisher used him as much as he possibly could have. So I don't want to hold that against him. But there's a lot to like about a guy like Higby in a Sean McVay offense. Do you think that that he and Cooper will become more prevalent in this off- offense, even though they've got the forty five million dollar man in Tavon Austin? Well, I mean, I think that when you look at um, Higby. You have to understand, first of all, that rookie tight ends don't produce in the NFL. They just rarely do. It's it's so rare that, um, you know, really the most productive rookie tight end in history at this stage still is Mike Ditka. So let that sink in, that Mike Ditka still is the most productive, <laughs> had the most productive rookie season in history for the tight end position. Um, that, one, should tell you how great Mike Ditka was as a tight end, and two, just how difficult it is as a position to learn because – it's not so much the receiving aspect of it, it's the blocking aspect. Blocking at the NFL level is miles away different for a tight end than it is, you know, at the college game. And Higby was, you know, more of a hybrid receiver who could block at the college level but had a lot more to learn in terms of what he did at the line of scrimmage. And then you also had the fact that linebackers cover a lot better um, at this level. And, and you see guys who, if they have some shred of athletic ability to run fairly fast and fluidly and they can win the ball in the air, they're suddenly a good tight end prospect. But, you know, watch the difference between, you know, a lot of these guys that we hear about like that and a guy like Tony Gonzalez, who even in his 40s, when you watch him, not his 40s, but in his, the late stage of his career, when you watch, even when he couldn't run down the field and stretch a seam, his quickness at coming out of a break was still lightning fast. I mean, just, it was impossible to defend. And mm-hmm. that's what got him open, even in those late stage of his career in Atlanta. So when you look at Higby, had a lot of things he had to learn. I would not, if, if anyone's disappointed with, with Higby because he didn't play well or get to see the field as a rookie, then you don't have the perspective of the league history um, that you need to really look at it fairly. Um, he is a very good prospect. He's someone that makes he's, – he's physical after the catch. He's fluid at being able to stretch the field. He's someone that I think is going to become a very good route runner, and he's big enough and, and fluid enough to become a decent blocker. So I think that, you know, based on the developmental timetable that most tight ends in the history of the game have who become starters, he's probably on a good track. He, he should be on a good track to develop into a – a capable guy who can give you that field stretching ability and be paired well with the receivers that they use. Now, Cooper, to me, I didn't think Cooper was a complete receiver. I was not high on him during the draft. I thought he was kind of a poor man times ward, and I mean poor um, in that recent, in, in that sense. But you know, if used in the right way, you can probably use him in the way that Pierre Garcon was used in that offense. With a, or, Mar, or Mohamed Sanu, where he crosses the field, gets to be physical, gets to run after the catch, doesn't have to run much more than slants and crossers and maybe some stick routes, um, nothing where he's going to have to tell a major story, but more just read the defense and make sure that he finds the open hole 
and that he can get downfield with the ball. And if you ask him to do that, he's going to be fine. And I think that he can be good in that respect, especially if there's enough going on around him for him to be used in that way. And if they get another receiver like, you know, John Ross to stretch the field um, or Smith Schuster to be a reliable presence on the outside that forces maybe safeties to cheat over, um, then you're going to get some of those openings for a guy like Cooper that can help out, especially, again, if you're pairing him with a tight end, the caliber of Higby, if Higby can, um, you know, make that next step. And I think that it's a reasonable expectation to believe that he'll see the field more and he'll have, um, he'll have bigger plays. The, the well, I imagine so, because Kendricks him. is gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the, the bigger issue with Higby to me isn't about him on the field, it's about him off the field. That's the bigger issue that I have with him because I think all the Rams fans know about, you know, his behavior off the field at Western Kentucky and, you know, and what happened to him before the draft um, and what he did before the draft. So, you know, if, if he can grow up and if long, you know, if, if the legal system, the legal woes are behind him and he's, and the legal system has decided that that, whatever you think outside of that, that, he was that he's paid his uh, penance or whatever they're going to do, then you know, then maybe he has a chance to grow up and, and become a professional and and mind his business off the field. And if he does that, then I think all systems will go. Fair enough. And I got one last question here from from one of our. It's actually writers who who absolutely loves your work, Brandon Bate. He said, "Really excited for this podcast." By the way, I love Matt's work. He says, "I know he likes Yearby, but I'm wondering about the potential late round change of pace compliments for Todd Gurley." Nice. Yeah. Well, it's always nice to hear from folks who like the work you do, and it's um. I appreciate that. And yeah, I do like Yerby. He's certainly a fun player and he could be a nice change of pace. He gave you a thumb up for that one, by the way. So I think Brandon's in the Yerby camp as well. Yeah. So let's, let's look at some other guys then, you know, but I mean, for those of you who are wondering about Yerby, I'll just touch on it and say, Scott, you know, this is a guy that was in the same backfield as Dalvin cook at high school. Um, and he, you know, he had a really good year with Miami, not last year, but the year before. Um, he's a, you know, he's a shorter, smaller, 200-pound back, um, kind of in the, the size range of Giovanni Bernard. He's got excellent vision, change of direction. He can catch the ball extremely well. He runs with a little bit more pop um, and physicality and balance than what you might expect, um, though he's probably not going to be the guy that carries the load for you unless he can somehow add another 15 pounds of muscle and, and re- retain that explosion. And if he does that, then he could really surprise. But guys in the later rounds that you might look at and say, who would be a change of pace guy that you, know, you might be able to get? Well, you know, I like, you know, I like Justin Davis out of USC. I'm a Justin Davis fan. I think he's an interesting player. Um, I think another one that, might be able to give you kind of an all-around game who might be a mid-round guy or a late-round, mid-to-late-round guy is Matthew Days out of NC State. He can do pretty much everything well. Um, he's just not a master of anything. He's kind of, some people say stylistically he's like Frank Gore. I would say he's a slightly, he's, a, he's more like Kadeem Carey, but with a little more explosion. Very tough guy, um, but can get the yards if you're looking for. If you're looking for an explosive element, 
you know, maybe Joe Williams um, at Utah. He's kind of got that, you know, somewhere in that range of Chris Johnson, Kerwin Williams, who plays for the Arizona Cardinals. He can catch the ball reasonably well. He's very fast. Um, but I would say that he would probably be better in a gap scheme. So if they're going to run more zone in this respect, you know, I think a guy like Aaron Jones probably fits the bell. Elijah McGuire is in the, you know, is kind of more of in that Joe McKnight, Theo Riddick, Reggie Bush kind of range of player, but not as explosive. Um, but he he's kind of got some interest there from that range. And then I would say that, you know, he's probably not going to go there um, because he's he's a lot higher on boards than than what I think he's worth. But, you know, Alvin Kamara certainly has a Felix Jones quality to me in terms of, uh, you know, some of the explosiveness of what he has available. And then I'll just mention one other, two other guys that are interesting to me. If somehow Aaron Jones falls into their lap out of UTEP, um, he's about 5'10", 215. Um, he's an every down back. He's a guy that I think could wind up being a big surprise in this draft class. Um, and it'd be interesting if he winds up, you know, the late round pick. And the last guy I'll mention um, who is, who may end up being more of a wide receiver, but he's a, he's a human joystick in his own right is Samaje Grant out of Arizona. Um, this guy kind of reminds me of a mix of Eric Metcalf and the Anthony Thomas if, um, in the sense of, he he understand, but he understands how to run behind the line of scrimmage. Like he knows how to press a hole. He will hit it up in the into the crease, even though he's only in the 175 pound range. But he's he plays with strength. He plays with smarts. He is unbelievably light footed and quick. Um, he's got great speed and he can catch the ball because he was actually a receiver for Arizona until two of their running backs went down last year. And then he put up big numbers against the likes of Colorado and Arizona State and a few other teams in the Pac-10, and he looked like a natural as a running back. Um, I was I was really surprised about him, um, and I think that you know guys like that could be fascinating for a team that just wants a change of pace um, for Gurley that can be more of a, a quick hitting element or an all-around kind of player who can give you three-down type of play. Fair enough. Derek, what do you got for him before we let Matt get out of here? Um, I don't really have anything else. I mean, I think Matt covered the bases on pretty much every skill position, and I got my Trubisky questions out of the way, so I think I'm good. <laughs> those, those are the important ones, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I just got one or, one or two quick ones here for you. If you look at what the Rams maybe do need to address defensively, uh, you know, right now about the only young and healthy player they have on the defensive line is is Aaron Donald, and he's certainly coming up uh, toward the end of his contract with really little incentive to stay at this point if the Rams don't start winning. Um, what, you know, Wade Phillips comes in, he's going to convert it over to a 3-4, but as Benjamin Albright has talked about on this podcast, it's not necessarily a traditional 3-4. It's kind of a modern 3-4 using edge rushers or guys that sort of double as those those jokers or linebacker or, or a defensive end. Um, 
What do you think the Rams, are there any guys out there that would be worth a damn um, in, in the later rounds that, that, that you could possibly think of to, to, to help the, the Rams up defensively? Also knowing that Tremaine Johnson is possibly on his way out the door. Well, I'll just say that, you know, if you're looking at, if you're looking at a player that can provide a pass rushing element and you're wondering about the transition with the players that they have or whether those guys are going to be out the door, you know, a guy who might fit into that range of being their version of the of Von Miller or trying to be Von Miller would be a guy like um, JoJo Mathis out of Washington. Um, Joe Mathis out of Washington is a is an intriguing guy who had a very strong year last year. He got hurt um, midway through, um, but he can bend an edge. He has good hands. He has some pop to his hands to be able to generate a push seems to be able to understand passing lanes well enough to drop in the zone and, and cover the areas that he's supposed to with good responsibility. He's got that high motor you're looking for, in addition to the fact that he can turn the corner and really put pressure on the quarterback. So that's a guy that I really like, and I think that you know maybe in that offense, if they're, in that defense, if they're looking for someone who can provide that kind of um, you know play that would fit in a mold of what they're looking for with Miller and DeMarcus Ware and what they did in Denver. Maybe that's something that he can provide, you know, there if they're looking for someone who can anchor that for the next, you know, three to five years in that first contract. Fair enough. And then finally, um, as you take a look around the, the, the Rams and, and of what you've seen of them this year when you were watching film, which I'm sure was, you know, catch up on golf more than to watch the Rams because the Rams gave nobody a reason to watch them in 2016. Nobody. Um, well, 49ers fans, they gave them a reason to watch. Uh what do you think the most pressing needs are? We were kind of arguing about this, and one of the guys that we talked about, just because the offensive line has just been so bad for the Rams, and it was actually mentioned by Derek Klassen, I'll give him the credit for it, was a guy like Pat Elflein. I mean, in your estimation, I mean, obviously the five-year experiment on, on Greg Robinson has gone belly up. Is is offensive line as bad as we think it is, or do you think that there's actually a position of greater need? I do have think there's a position of greater need, and it's not one that you guys may be really asking me to describe. And you know, I hope I'm you know I hope I'm. You're going to say get rid of Johnny Hecker so your team can swoop up on him, huh? Yeah, that's it. Actually, no. <laughs> um, the position is owner. Um, ah! the position is owner because there needs to be better leadership at owner um, with the ownership. And it starts from the top down when you, you know, I understand that Stan Kroenke, you know, a real estate mogul who married Ann Walton, the heir, one of the heiresses to the Walmart fortune who, you know, he made his own bones in real estate and certainly under you know, all the credit goes to him for being a good biz, good real estate um, developer and to being able to make money on his own and then have that padded on a million times over with the Walmart fortune and being a part of that um, and being able to then buy, you know, a number of teams. Great. You know, um, certainly the Rams had their misfortunes with the, during the Georgia Plantieri tenure. Um, and he inherited a lot of that. Um, but to me, the Rams have been a revolving door of, you know, of just 
things not working out. Some of that you can blame on injuries. Some of that can be bad draft picks. Some of that can be coaching. You know, there's a lot of things that happen, but, you know, I've, you know, I've been a fan of the Cleveland Browns for a long time. Um, I grew up a Browns fan. I've lived in Atlanta, and I've seen the changeover of ownership with Atlanta with Art Blank. And when you have an owner like Art Blank who built an organization, you know, and as a leader, he was a leader. He, you know, I don't, you know, is real estate more sales? I, you know, certainly, but running a, a development firm, I'm sure, requires some level of leadership and accountability. Um, and being able to get people in the right direction. But when you run a brick and mortar, when you start a brick and mortar store called Home Depot, and it was a brick and mortar store, there was only one of them. I grew up not far from it. Um, and then it grew into the empire that it was. That requires some level of leadership and understanding people mm-hmm. and understanding situations and having tools that work across industries to be able to make things good. One of the things that Art Blank did first day, first year. He went into camp. They had camp near Furman University. That's the time that they did it. And he went in there and he was talking with the president of Furman or the head of Furman. Um, and they were giving him the tour of the facilities that the, his players would be using that they've used every year for training camp. And, and he said, you'll be staying here though. And where he's staying is, um, was at the president's house. It was like this really nice house. He goes, no, I don't want to stay here. I want to stay where the players stay. I want to know what the player. No, you not want to stay there. Yeah, I do. I want to stay. I want to see what, I want to experience what the players experience. And if you've seen Art Blank, he's not a young man, okay? No. He wasn't a young man when he took this. And he said what he witnessed was, oh, well, let's see. I'm having players work out in training camp and get trying to get prepared for the season and they have to put their beds down on the floor to a, a bunch to sleep on the floor because the beds are too small for them. Or they have towels that look the size of dish rags around them because of the fact that that's what was supplied to them. Or that, you know, so these guys couldn't sleep. They couldn't appropriately, like, even just get a decent shower in where they were. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't even prepare in a way that you would want them to. And he looked at that and said, why am I, um, why are we here? Why am I even like going to Furman every year to, you know, to do this? Um, you know, and they started, they ended up going, you know, moving, relocating back to North of Atlanta here, not far from where I live and, you know, doing, having their own facilities and using their own and making sure that the players were in a situation where they needed to be and making sure that the coaching staff and the GM are aligned and that the GM and the, and the scouting department are aligned and making sure that people agree, you know, have kind of a, a, a common vision and that things aren't distractions because I love Eric Dickerson. He's a great football player. He was a great, 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 great football player, but I don't need to be hearing about Bravo network stuff when it comes right. to football. You know, right. I don't need that. And Stan Kroenke was in the middle of that. If you're going to react to Derek Dickerson, talking, shooting off his mouth about Jeff Fisher. If you're going to have the HBO cover your team because you're trying to get publicity and you're trying to, and you're doing all these different things, you're trading numerous draft picks for a position that we know needs a high level of vision for the player to be successful, no matter how talented he is. 
and, and a level of persistence and patience and, and alignment with the team. And if you don't have any of that, then you're not going to be a good team. And I think the Falcons figured that out. I think the Falcons have, you know, they figured out what they need to do, who, who they're going to be, and how to make that team be what they wanted to be um, and, and make it all work that way. And I don't think that, and I think that starts with the owner. It starts with the owner because if they are reactive and they're just about making a quick buck or turning things over for, you know, looking at quarterly profits or looking at attendance, but they're not looking at the long game. If they're not doing that, then your team is not going to get better. So to me, the position that needs to be fixed the most starts from the top. You know, there are a lot of Rams fans that agree with you. And what's funny, too, is across the pond, I'm a, you know, we've talked about this. I'm a Premier League guy. I know you, you don't do uh, soccer as much, but uh, I love the Premier League. And, and, and it's funny because the very words you've just said are all things that <clears throat> impassioned Arsenal fans and journalists and, and supporters, noted famous supporters, have said about Kroenke with Arsenal that that he basically he runs it as a business. He doesn't run it as a franchise that wants to win. Winning is secondary to the dollar, and uh, you know it's 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 there's those arguments have been made. And un, unfortunately, though, unless Kroenke just moved him out here to sell him, I I think that Rams fans are stuck with him, and they're going to have to hope that a guy like Sean McVay can succeed uh, in the face of, of what appears to be a, a failure of an owner. Um, but, you know, some people feel as though Kroenke drops a lot of money into his teams. And, and, and I think that there is something to be said for a guy that foots the bill to his own stadium. Look, I realize that this is the smallest of small things, and I, and I agree with you. I still think that there, you know, a change at the top – is is something that's been needed at least at Arsenal. I, I you know Rams fans, can ha- I haven't been following the team long enough to have to have a position on the matter, but I've certainly noticed that business does seem to come before winning. And uh, you know, it's a it's a good point about you know look, good business to me is winning. Well, good that's fair enough. Is, you know, and there's making and yes, you need to be able to make money and have a good bottom line, but you're also there are a lot of, quote, good businessmen who only worry about quarterly profits, and they, they're constantly screwing up their company to bend over backwards to please shareholders, as opposed to actually doing the long game and doing things right, which is what, if they listen to actually their analysts, they listen mm-hmm. to their, you know, their negotiating crew, they listen to, oh, their, their C-suite, they would probably, they would probably do that a little bit more often, but there are but a lot of what is old-fashioned good business has gone away. And we have to understand that that's great that he's pouring money in, but having money, money is an important resource. Right. It's one of the most important resources. But what's more important is vision, leadership, follow-through, persistence, and staying the course with a good plan and developing a good plan. So I don't care how much money you throw at a problem. What I care more about is, What's your solution to the problem and how are you sticking with it and how are you tracking it and how are you making sure that you can be a, an active, constructive part of it? Because to me, 
you know, all money is, is it's a material like electric, like electricity, you know, you can put a, you can run electricity through a horrendously ugly light that doesn't work extremely well. And the light bulbs keep popping out of, you know, popping off and you have to get new light bulbs every two days, or you can have someone design something for you that provides awesome light, um, makes the best use of one light bulb for many, many, many years and looks awfully good doing it. And people don't want to, you know, and people want to buy one, you know, buy one after the other, after the other, and they, everyone wants to have one in their house. Um, you know, so again, but then again, you know, I'm not a big fan of Walmart either. So there right. you have it. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fair. But you know what I want to do right now is I want to give you a chance to talk about the things that you're working on and the changes that you've made, because You've been trying out some new things with your videos, which Derek, uh, <clears throat> instant feedback you can give him. On his videos? Oh, yeah, mm. the new thing he's been trying. Dude, the all the RSPs, the RSPs, <laughs> like, I watch them pretty religiously at this point. Like, I actually just watched the one with um, Charles McDonald. Charles McDonald is a really good friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, I stayed uh, hotel in the hotel with him in Mobile and stuff, so... Um, watching him on the Julia Johnson episode was really, really cool. And Chuck is probably one of my favorite people in terms of like defensive line talk. And, um, I mean, Matt's just good at all positions and he's very good at, um, managing the way that, you know, the flow goes. And I, um, my other favorite one that I recently watched was the Mahomes one with, uh, Mark Schofield. Yeah. Mark's really cool too. Met him in down in Mobile. And, um, I mean, every RSP just knocks it out of the park. So, um, those are great videos. So excited to see how many more of those come out before the end of the draft season. Well, I appreciate that. And, and certainly, you know, I mean, a lot of, you know, I would say the best video stuff I see out on the market right now, I'll give it to somebody else is Brett Coleman, who does work with, who used to be a former NFL um, network um, associate producer. And, and I would check out his film rooms if you're looking at prospects in general, because he'll put 50 to 90 hours into a single um, 10 to 15 minute thing. So you're getting professionally done work. I'm basically using this as tidbits of information or, or, you know, semi, you know, where the video quality and the production quality comes second to the guests and the discussion. Um, so I'm glad that people like it. I'm glad you like it there. That's, that's a big compliment coming from you. I know you do good work with quarterbacks and you, you know, some of the work that I've seen that you do, I, you know, I certainly enjoy. And, and I would say that, you know, certainly we got to have you on, we got to do some, have you on the film room and do some, take a look at some quarterbacks down the line as well. But I would say that, yeah, the, um, you know, I working on that and the RSP comes out April 1st. So I'm, you know, I'm on the finishing stages of watching film, um, for, you know, for those who have no idea what RSP is, do you want to drop a little knowledge on them? Because this is, this is the end all be all of guides. (laughs) Well, I, I know that there are regular subscribers on my timeline that are going to be tweeting about it in a couple of weeks. Like I know it, and I know who they are too. Well, it's cool, and I'm I'm appreciative of that. The the RSP is the Rookie Scouting Portfolio, and it's an annual publication that's divided into two parts. The first one comes out April first every year since 2006, and the second one comes out a week after the NFL draft. The first part is really designed to be my look at talent for the skill positions, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end. 
And it's really devoid of what I think of their draft status. It's based solely on what I do on film. So I give you rankings that are based on two types of um, views. One is a broader, uh, you know, kind of more a broad-based look at their talent, things that they can do that are, you know, basic skills to their position and their athletic ability, and then a more in-depth look. So we're looking at kind of the, the breadth of their talent and then the depth of their talent. Um, so that, you know, you can have a player who does a lot of things adequately that would fit what the NFL is looking for, but they may not have a really deep talent somewhere, you know, but then you may have a player like John Ross, who, you know, who may not be a great blocker, may not be run the full route tree, but because of what he does extremely well, that depth of talent score is going to be, you know, fairly higher than what you'd see breadth of talent. So I rate players in two ways like that. I give a glossary of explanation of how I, how I go through my process. So you'll see what my process is about, what my grading scale looks like. You'll see rankings based on skill sets and techniques um, based on each position. Um, I'm actually going to give two years worth of rankings with players. So if you're a fantasy football owner, you'll get a chance to see kind of what I thought of last year's class in context with this year's class um, at the time, you know, at that time. So um, you'll get some of that. And then the, the post-draft, I take all that information and I apply it to where they fit with their team. And I give you a fantasy football oriented look at where I think, how I think those guys are going to do year one or year two, kind of a more of a shorter term look at what I think they're going to be able, they're capable of doing based on their fit with their teams. And I redo the, the rankings based on that. Whereas the, the, the first one in April is more of a long-term three to five year, regardless of, um, regardless of team type of look. So a player, for instance, like Spencer Ware, who's with the, who was drafted by the Seahawks, I had him ranked, I believe, in my top five in the pre-draft version of the RSP, the year that he came out. And that was the year when you had guys like Eddie Lacy and Le'Veon Bell and, you know, folks of that, of that caliber. And he was ranked highly. Um, and I look, you know, I'll look at guys like that. Um, so, you know, you get player comparisons, rankings, skill set looks, um, a, a kind of a draft overview at each position with a little bit of history of the draft and what's recently gone on in terms of how many players are taken at that position and, you know, kind of information about how I see this class as a whole and some fantasy advice that's dished in there as well. So that's what the RSP is. It's available for $21.95. I do an early bird special that's already passed, but for those of you who get it, you know, every year you guys are well aware of that. I explained that on Twitter and, um, it's for that 2195, you get this book. That's probably, you know, it's a 200 page guide with all my play by play work that I add onto it. So you get really 1100 pages worth of work. You're only going to look at probably 200 of them. Um, and it's in a PDF format that's bookmarked, easy to navigate. And then you get the, the other, you know, 120, 130 page post draft. And that's all one price. 10% of the money goes to Darkness to Light, um, which is an organization designed to train people on how to prevent and deal with sexual abuse um, of children. So it's a way of being able to protect communities. They do training 
at municipal organizations like police, fire department, schools, little leagues, um, courts, um, all sorts, you know, they can, they also do individual trainings. So um, it's, a, it's a great organization and it's something that, you know, as a football fan and we saw what happened with Penn State, that I thought would be a good idea as football fans that we could you know, show solidarity. Proactive. To want to be a part of the solution. Yeah, be proactive and be part of the solution. Couldn't couldn't be a better cause, Matt. And I think that it's uh, I'm gonna say magnanimous, but I, I I mean that with with all sincerity because a lot of people out there, uh, you know, they talk up a good game, but it's it's all hey, here's where you can donate, and then they don't 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 donate themselves. I I think that people have a, those people have a role in helping to spread the information and that's certainly critical but i also think there's something to be said for matching the money with the causes that you're truly passionate about and i can't think of a better cause than than the prevention of child abuse and 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 sexual abuse um I, as as somebody who came from a home where my mother was molested and my grandmother was beaten, I have seen the firsthand effects of what that does to a person and how that has directly impacted my life because I was given up to group homes and, uh, and residential treatment centers because my, my mother wasn't in a position to... Uh, take care of me because she had to work through those issues so you know i i i know firsthand how that can impact a family and uh i sincerely appreciate your efforts to the cause well well certainly i'm glad that you guys had me on and i get a chance to be able to promote that and you know i mean obviously this is my business so i make money off of it it's my primary mode but it's nice to be able to give back and it is a cause i believe in um very deeply and as you said, you know, it is a generational issue. It create, you know, it has a ripple effect on our society in a yep. very broad way that is not discussed. And it's something that um, certainly if we can help, the best way to do that is prevention and to be able to understand also to understand the dynamics of how to actually approach any type of discussion of when abuse happens, because one of the most damaging parts about the Penn State scandal, as we saw, wasn't the act, wasn't just the act, but the cover-up, but the and the behavior of how people responded to the victims, and to and oftentimes the trauma it, for for the victims is how people respond to their victimization is almost as big of a deal, if not more of a bigger deal than the actual abuse itself, as odd as that may seem to someone who may not understand mm -hmm. the dynamics of this. So absolutely, if, and if you just are someone who's interested in giving to them right away, Darkness to Light. They're an organization out of Charleston, South Carolina. Um, they're a national organization. You can check them out on their website. Well, we certainly appreciate you donating your time, man. You have answered literally all of our questions and more. Matt, it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you on Twitter. And I'm absolutely certain that we should schedule something post-Rams NFL draft uh, just as we did last year. And we'll get you back on here with your thoughts on those guys. And uh, that'll also give you another chance to push uh, – 
push the rookie scouting portfolio because that'll be right after draft time. So fantasy football owners will be savagely putting together their their think tank <laughs> packets. So uh, we can definitely help you push that again around that time because, hey, look, man, I wouldn't talk about something if I didn't believe in it. And I was pushed into RSP by somebody. So I know a good product when I see it. And, and Derek... Like he said, he religiously watches these things. 33,000 plus followers don't lie, man. You know your stuff, and uh, we can't wait to have you back on, buddy. Yeah, hey, I definitely appreciate it. Thanks again for having me on. Good talking with you, Derek, and uh, look forward to having you on the film room soon. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Matt. Thank you. So that's Matt Waldman, ladies and gentlemen. Follow him on Twitter at Matt Waldman, and uh, that will about do it for us here, I think, on Turf Show Radio, because there's really no follow-up to that act, I, I think, Derek. Like, I mean, do you have any final thoughts on that? I mean, just to kind of put, put some out there? No, Anything man. you might disagree with? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, Matt's... Not, not gonna, you're not going to take that bait? <laughs> no, well, because, I mean, even, even if I have a little bit of... Uh, of a little bit of disagree with, with Matt's. Uh, I mean, he's one of the smartest and I know most thorough guys on here. So I know that he knows what he's watching. Um, and I'm sure if we have any disagreements, we'll get to it um, whenever I hop on the RSP. So it was great talking with Matt. Yeah, no. And uh, obviously I'm just being a little shit starter because, you know, <laughs> uh, Matt's a great guy and he wouldn't care if you disagreed with him anyhow. Like I said, I, I let him convince me about Juju and now I do feel better about him. I still maintain that I think Darius Rogers has been a prospect, but right now I have the advantage of having seen film he has not. So I'm okay to say that. I'm sure he's going to crush me on the back end. Though. This is going to be it's going to be a very short-lived victory where like the Battle of Three, you know, Thermopylae, the 300 celebrated, and and then the thunder came. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> then they died. Uh, that'll be me on the back end of this thing, man. But, uh, yeah, we can't stress enough. Follow us uh, on Twitter, at Turf Show Times. You can find us on Facebook, Snapchat, your chat, his chat, every chat. We're on We're on just about everything. Uh, please get at us, interact with us. Uh, Derek can be found on Twitter, at QB Class, with a K, K-L-A-S-S. Because his last name is Klassen, the nice, nice, firm, strong Dutch name. Um, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Fight on Twist and our glorious producer, who is a filthy, filthy, disgusting Niners fan, but does the work for free anyways, and we really couldn't do it without him. He is one of the best in the business and also somebody I am proud to call my friend, Mr. Scott W. Johnston. You can follow him on Twitter at Sports Speaks, like he speaks, she speaks, the president speaks, those types of speaks. So uh, other than that, we will catch you next week. I believe Lanny has another guest lined up for us. So We got Miles Simmons for next week. All right, cool. We have Miles. It doesn't get any better than that. I'm sure we'll have so much fun with Miles because we'll ask him why he doesn't say anything bad about the Rams like the fans want him to because 
he's not a Rams employee or anything, you know? He doesn't work for the team. So, savages. But, uh, yeah, other than that, we will be back next week with Miles Simmons. So, catch you next week here on Turf Show Radio. Hello, I'm Ashley Carmen. I'm Caitlin Tiffany. We're the hosts of Why'd You Push That Button, the Verge's show about all the choices technology forces us to make. We're back for season three, talking about questions like, why do you delete your tweets? And why do you type in lowercase letters that make you seem like a serial killer? (laughs) And why are you on an exclusive dating app? You're not that special. We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and you can find this anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.